Hello, I'm Josephine Burton and welcome back to the Dash Arts podcast, seeing the world through an artistic lens. Earlier in 2021, we held a Dash Cafe, Disco and the Atomic War, which explored the infiltration of the Soviet Union by American TV in the 70s and 80s, an ongoing digital subversion today. What we lost from not being able to have a drink at the bar, we gained through digital technology, as I was able to welcome guests from Finland, Estonia, France and the UK to our Zoom room. We screened short snippets from Gio Arma and Jack Kilmey's charming and highly entertaining documentary, Disco and the Atomic War. And I chatted with Gio himself, Kirsty Narinen, a Finnish diplomat and former ambassador who basked in the near-midnight sun from her holiday home in northern Finland, political analyst and counterpoint director, Catherine Fieschi, and author and journalist, Peter Pomerantsev. I started the evening asking my guests to recount the first time they realized through TV or culture more widely that there was another way to see the world. Kirsty kicked off by telling us about her experience of watching Soviet adverts in Estonia, in contrast to the Finnish ads that began to make their way into Estonia across the Gulf of Finland through secretly redirected TV aerials. They were also told the stories. They showed the society, the sides of society that were something astonishing for them. And for us, quite normal. You remember watching them and, and experiencing them live when you were in Estonia, did you? Yes, because I mean, when I was living in, in Leningrad, then we traveled to Estonia. So the contrast of the Russian TV and the Finnish television in Estonia was rather, how would I say, large, huge, <laughs> fundamental. And this was also something that when the Estonians that were um, watching the Finnish television for them, commercials was something also un, uh, like unreal. And those right. who thought that it, the Finnish television was propagandistic. And then when people realized that actually, when they then came to Finland and saw that, for instance, the meat counters actually are in every store, that it's not propagandistic, that it's true. It's describing the, the reality. There was one discussion I had myself. There was this communist party member who was saying that that's when I realized that they have lied to us. But what else did they lie? Kio, is that familiar to you, those stories? Um, yes, basically. I doubt if uh, there were a lot of people in Estonia back in the uh, 70s or 80s who would have uh, doubted that the world living in a market economy is, is real. Um I mean, uh, Estonians uh, were quite aware of uh Mm. of the um, the uh, other side there but the only thing or, or one of the things the television uh, cannot actually give you is the smell of things probably the first memory is, is the smell of this uh, Finnish uh, lacrys uh, <laughs> you know the, the candies the, the black candies usually children uh, tend to hate them uh, but um, the licorice uh, licorice yes, yes. licorice, yeah, yeah, licorice. Yeah. But um, that emotion with the smell of licorice, um, when I was probably like 10 years old, uh, visiting Finland the uh, first time in my life, that was so impressive and strong. Uh, so I, I secretly uh, still uh, buy and eat them. Although my, 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 my kids, they, they, they really hate this, this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely. I love that. I love that it's something so kind of um, visceral and that taste and the smell of the licorice. What about you, Peter? Do you have do you have like memories of those transitions? 
Um, I mean, I'd love to say so, but but I, I should be honest. I was um, nine months old when I was removed from the <laughs> Soviet Union by my parents. So all I had time to do was throw up all over the Soviet Union. And that was it, really. And I left. I had it the other way around, though, because I grew up in, in North London as a, a refugee. But I did have all this stuff from the Soviet Union. So I had these records, these Melodia records, which had all these amazing Russian, Soviet children's musicals like Beminsky Musicante, which is absolutely amazing. And I had all my parents' books because they brought them with them. I grew up in London thinking I'm the only person who has these book covers to Pushkin and Dostoevsky. And I'm the only person in the world who has this secret, wonderful stash of records. And I remember going to um, what was then already Russia in around 91, just after, you know, everything fell apart and realizing that there is a whole world where people have these records and the same books. And I, I just thought it was very, very strange. I thought it was completely my own little universe. And this moment of understanding that, that I, you know, that would, had actually been a, a little reflection of, of, of a whole civilization of sight and sound. And did it feel like you came home then as a result? Did it feel extremely, you felt like you'd landed somewhere familiar? It's more like Solaris, you know, the end of Solaris where I'm on a, I'm clearly on an alien planet. For some reason, like my house is there. You know, it's very, <laughs> that kind of thing. Right, right. Fabulous. And finally, Catherine, what about, what about any reflections on, on when you had that first encounter with otherness? I guess what was behind the Iron Curtain? So I had a, I had a, a kind of reverse experience of that too, but from a different place in a sense. I, I moved to the United States from Northern Italy in 1976. When I was eight, and um, Turin in northern Italy in 1976. I mean, it was not deprived, but um, you know, it was grey. It was uh, there was very little choice. Um, you know, it was a, a modest kind of life in in some ways. And we we moved to Chicago. My father was transferred to Chicago as, as a diplomat, and. We, my sister and I left Italy weeping and weeping and weeping that we were leaving, leaving Italy behind and our friends behind. And within 24 hours, we were fully signed up members of American consumer society. Within 24 hours, we discovered, you know, many packets of cereals. We discovered Saturday morning cartoons. We discovered deep shag, uh, pile carpet. Um, and it was, it was just extraordinary because, you know, our allegiance kind of flipped in absolutely no time. You know, within within a day, we were saying to each other, "We're never leaving, are we?" No, 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 we're never leaving. <laughs> you know, I certainly wasn't. I wasn't coming from behind the Iron Curtain, but I was coming from a different world and discovered the pull of the United States and how powerful it was. The evening was inspired by his amazingly beautiful, funny, and poignant film. We're going to show you some clips and we're going to start our evening with the opening sequence from Kyo's beautiful film, Disco and the Atomic War. Solemina, Jaak. Parasa kolema kaheks aastane. Mala nõismäel, uues elureoonis, mida pidevalt ehitatakse. Mu elu on suurepärane, sest ma näen Soome televisiooni. Minu isa õpetab meid pildistama. Thank you, fantastic, thank you. So that was the very beginning of, of the film. Um, Gio, is that your story? Is it Jack's story? Is it an amalgamation of the two? 
Yeah, absolutely. First of all, it's it's, it's not m- like my film only. It's a close duo or, or tandem with the uh, the arc. Basically, it's it's kind of um, it's a series of of different conflicts. First of all, it's it's a kind of conflict uh, between the generations uh, here in Estonia, as um, we are born in seventy four and seventy five, and if we had been born like free four years earlier. We uh, we definitely had been um, uh, kind of heroes of revolution because the the famous singing revolution uh, took place like 1988. Um, but we were like like 12, 13 year old boys uh, by this time, so um, we needed our own kind of big story. And and watching secretly uh, commercials from Finnish television, that uh, that was a um, big story enough for us. Um, so we kind of invented this world and described this quite schizophrenic world. So you created this beautiful film, which is both your own story. And there's a lovely story of the Dallas sharing between cousins. This is That's a true, true story. story. Yeah. yeah, that was uh, uh, Jaak's niece, uh, and and they really didn't see the the Finnish television in the in the southern uh, part of the country. Um, that was actually only uh, directed for the capital of Estonia, Tallinn. Um, so, uh, like thirty kilometers ahead of Tallinn, uh, you. Couldn't see these. Uh, you could, couldn't see the, the, the Finnish TV. Um, and uh, yes, that is a kind of mm, inner cultural conflict uh, within the country. And and, and it it uh, it uh, it is still seen today. You could like hear it in the in the talks of the friends from southern Estonia. Quite many, but like. Finnish loan words. The language is different. The language of the, those people who were not, who didn't have access to mm, Finnish TV. Cultural experience. Have less cultural language. Cultural experience less, is different, yeah. Are there real tensions between the, 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 the generations that grew up in, politically tensions that grow up in Tallinn and those who didn't have access to the cartoons and the Dallas and the Night Rider? Have you seen an impact on that through the generation as those, te- those young people grew up? Yeah, I, uh, I would like to stress that that uh, the whole story with the Finnish television uh, is not political at all, because Finnish television uh, television was was quite neutral. Kirsty, you were you were a diplomat during this time, obviously observing what had gone on, but also spending time in in St. Petersburg in Leningrad. Do you remember that? The stories of you know, how the aerials were being angled into into Estonia and and the kind of the impact of that culturally. Oh yes, and it was of course it was a bit surrealistic. I visited a friend in Tallinn who was actually writing with the Finnish TV programs and then then copying them with a copying machine at, uh, at his at her work. It was it was so unreal to me. How does this work and what does this mean? Because I mean, television for the Finnish. People was quite normal. And yet, of course, I had been watching the Soviet television. I know that the news, it was the propagandistic, but I think you referred to, uh, quite beautifully to the, to the key point here. It was the contrast. When people saw the, the television and the Finnish television was not unproblematic, just like you described. I fully agree because, I mean, we also had our political, uh, how should I say, searching for the balance in the, in the seventies. Mm-hmm. 
which means that that it was not uh, it was not uh, portraying the West as a paradise for for anybody. It was just the real world. And I think that the the main one of the main messages there was that as it wasn't political, it was the Finnish television for the Finnish people. Um, that the real world prepared Estonians for the reforms that then took place. And then another angle to that was, like you referred to that in the 70s, there were still a lot of people who remembered how the Estonian Republic worked mm. and looked like and felt and smelled like until 1940. And they had been in Finland. There were people who had visited Finland in the 30s. So so it was just kind of the real world for them was in the television. And then when they looked out of the window or when I looked out of the window of the little hotel in Tallinn, I saw the reality that was very far from reality. Have you seen this film? Oh, yes. I saw it when it came out then or immediately in 2000-something. When was it? Nine or ten. And I loved it because it was... Portraying the thing, the the story, like with irony, almost parody as a comedy, and that also being a contradiction when the life itself mm-hmm. was very far from being being funny or 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 entertaining. But they really, really beautifully grasped the feeling and the picture of that time. And when was it? When was it officially recognized that the that the Finnish broadcasting TV had slightly altered the angles in order to? in order to enable the broadcast to reach Estonia? Well, it was actually when when the TV mast, I've, I've spoken to the people, it says in the film that it was the TV mast was put there to cover Estonia, but that's not quite the whole truth. It was put there to cover southern Finland, but the engineers and the technicians and the geologists, they wanted to serve their brothers and sisters in Estonia. So it was it was really put as far out on the Gulf of Finland as possible, as technically possible. But this was never mentioned to those political decision makers that were actually, um, would have probably have had a word against it those days in Finland when the mast was put there. But it was really deliberately put out so to, so that the broadcast would cover as much of Estonia as possible. And this was the civil society that was so much concerned about the the fate of our sisters and brothers. This sense of civil society getting involved—it's not—it's not, it's not a, it wasn't just happening in uh, in, in Estonia, well, with Finland and Estonia. Um, I'm I'm aware, Peter, that you've written quite a lot about your, you know Radio Free Europe in your in this is not propaganda. I mean, are are some of these like, scenes and ideas familiar to you? And other work, other other activities that were going on to infiltrate other aspects of the Soviet Union. Um. Yes. I mean, there are also kind of moments of thaw. If we're talking about radio, I think what's so powerful here it's about TV, which is which kind of you know, and and the uniqueness of of that uh, Gulf of Finland experience. Um. The radio experience. I mean. Look, there was lots of like strange moments when Voice of America would be, you know, there'd be a thaw in relations with the Soviet Union and, you know, Voice of America was, would not be censored. Radio Free Europe, which was very political, was always censored. But, but Voice of America was allowed on and, and there were times when the BBC wasn't censored. And obviously jazz, um, and rock and roll were, were, you know, a huge part of, 
um, of that kind of um, public diplomacy, if you want to put it that way. So, so there were different kind of holes, you know, in the in in the wall. Um, I mean, what's so wonderful about the film is that it brings the, the television aspect to it. Kirsty, you were saying that you know the that the Finnish government was not aware of the kind of t- tweaking of the Finnish broadcasting TV to allow the antenna to go over. I mean, you you, you hypothesised that it was probably that the CIA was involved. Is there any grounds to this to this hypothesis? Well, um, back then we were just asking questions, right? Like, uh, was there any trace, and where the Finnish uh, officials aware, and then and so on and so on. Um, well, uh, actually, we uh, found a um, kind of letter or protocol um that um that was uh, communication between the american embassy in helsinki uh with their headquarters uh that uh, kind of uh, described these uh these uh, uh questions of uh, how they because the, the finland uh, was always uh, it, it was kind of a hot spot to um i'm sure Kirsti could uh, describe the the uh, uh, history uh, or diplomatic history of, of Finland uh, uh, more precisely, but uh, but that was kind of a front line between uh, the USSR and the Western world. If you actually look around in Finland, you probably see that that there are a lot of things that are that are more americans than the americans themselves like the this uh, this deep love uh, towards the american cards music cars music that must have been a battle for finland uh, too back then Catherine, can i would love to bring you in because i, I think it's really it would be really helpful for us to have a bit of a sense of Understanding, like you know, we've been bandying around these words like soft power and cultural diplomacy. Can you tell us a little bit about what they, you know, what they all mean? And 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 is this an evidence? Uh, is this an evidence of a of a soft power because it was slightly under the radar, or is it more like a? Well, you can tell us. Is it more like a cultural diplomatic act? Well, I mean, I'm I'm not sure that there's such a thing as diplomacy that isn't cultural. To be honest, the, the term cultural diplomacy is always something that I've I, I've found to be a little bit awkward. Um, I think that that what's interesting um, about the kind of soft power that you know the that the movie refers to and you know and sets the scene for. There's a couple of things, and they're they're particularly interesting. I think when we look at things from the point of view of where we are today. Um, what we see in in this film, which I have to say, Kira, I'm a huge fan of of your of your film. And I one of the reasons I discovered it um, was when I, I briefly worked for the British Council. And one of my missions when I was at the British Council that they didn't necessarily take too kindly to, I think, was the fact that I kept saying or trying to show that potentially the kind of soft power and the kind of cultural diplomacy. Um, that that something like a you know an arm of the foreign office you know could engage in um, such as the, the 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 things that the that the British Council were doing and, and doing doing very well that to some extent that those days were numbered right the, the days of that kind of soft power um, you know that is in the hands of a very defined set of actors 
um, were slightly numbered. And I have to admit that I used, I kind of used your film to, you know, pose the question, you know, what happens when everyone can be, you know, can be this vector of soft power? Um, and you, you set the stage for it, I think, brilliantly in, in your film because, you know, it's, it's kids, you know, writing letters, you know, playing gatekeeper with, you know, in a sense, the currency of soft power, um, at the time in your school and, you know, and in your neighborhood and, and, and so on. Um, you know, but what happens when the, you know, everyone has access or the illusion of access? Um, you know, to culture, when everyone can be, you know, a, a vector of culture, when everybody can play, you know, the, you know, the diplomat or, you know, as Peter might also argue, the propagandist, right? Or the illusionist, um, in some ways, you know, where is the line between the person who, in a sense, you know, plays the role of cultural vector and then, you know, the person who manipulates, um, that vector? I think that, you know, the, I think that the past 10 years, 15 years, even since, you know, you've made the film, things have have changed enormously. And even the the concept of soft power, you know, is, is a, is a challenging one because we used to know in a sense where it came from, you know, and I think the nature of soft power changes when it becomes so diffuse, right? When the sources are so multiple and when the trust in those sources, you know, is, is no longer what it was. So I think your, your film raises these questions very, very powerfully, um, and, and forces us to look again at, you know, who is the, who is the diplomat? Who, you know, where is the power located and how is this power diffused? It's changed a lot. And I think that that's one of the things that's really, really interesting. And I think also the, the channels of communication, you know, were such that, you know, I, I love the references to Dallas because, you know, when I finally did come back from, from the United States, you know, in, in 1981 in France, I arrived and this was, you know, the world pre-globalization. I knew who had shot JR, right? No one else in my school knew who had shot JR. They were only going going to find out a few months later. Now, this is a, you know, this is a state of affairs that simply cannot exist anymore, right? Um, individuals cannot, can no longer hold the kind of extraordinary power that I had walking into that French school. Um, and, and, and in a sense, that's also what I'm saying, right? Is that, you know, the, the, the message emanates from so many places and the borders, some borders are less porous and some borders are more porous. question I, I've been grappling with that I'd love to ask to hear your thoughts on is is there room for like have the messages changed I mean is there room still for Dallas to unsettle a nation well um, I must admit I've uh, never watched Dallas uh, although I had to translate the Finnish subtitles to my grandmother uh, she was the big fan of Dallas um, you know, Dallas wasn't the, the, the boy stuff. So, um, I cannot comment on Dallas. Sorry. I, I don't even know who, who actually shot the GR. <laughs> <laughs> but Catherine does, so she can tell us. But I, but, but also Catherine, do you, you were, you mustn't, your lips are sealed, but do you, I mean, it's interesting, this sort of the fun, gripping stuff that Giel's grandmother loved. I mean, is there still a space for, for, for Dallas in soft power today? I mean, I think it's quite clear that, you know, um, that, it, you know, if you take, you know, major, major British exports, right? 
um, you know, you take something like Downton Abbey. You know, Downton Abbey is an absolute is absolute part and parcel of the soft power arsenal. Um, you know, of a country like uh, like the United Kingdom. Um, you know, um, I mean, if you take something like the Crown, you know, you get you know you get exactly uh, the 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 same the same effect. Um, I think what's really interesting is you know what's is what is and isn't filtering through to us. Um, you know, so for example, if you take a power like China, who is clearly out, you know, to uh, use soft power in various ways, whether it's you know obviously through you know vaccine diplomacy, as we've seen you know in the, in the recent months and so on, but also very you know. Uh, is, is, is very keen, therefore, to project a certain kind of power. It'd be interesting to see what, in the end, ends up filtering, you know, to us, because there are efforts, there will be efforts, you know, and, and um, you know, what does soft power look like from the part of a, a different kind of empire in, you know, in 2021, um, you know, and, and, and in the case of, in the case of Russia, for example, you know, there's the soft, the internal soft power, and how effective or not effective that is, and whether it's just propaganda. And then, you know, what kind of projection, foreign projection, there, there, there might be. So I just, I just think these are, you know, uh, hugely changed areas, and I, I'd love to hear other people's thoughts on it. Absolutely, Kirsty, please. Yes, I had a couple of points. First of all, Finnish television had two channels those those years. It's kind of the, the, the abundance of offered TV series wasn't really there. We had Peyton Place and then we had a couple of Finnish TV series and then we had Dallas Dynasty later and then The Bold and the Beautiful. So, so this was the, this was more of a symbolic, um, kind of, you know, living the life of those people whose lives you could not live. And it was brought to you through the television. So this was not about Dallas. This was about any TV series that would, would have given this opportunity for us. And they were not that many. And this is the difference today, of course, when you have, even in Finland, you would get like 100 channels, which means that you have the Downton Abbey, you have the Crown, and you have all the others. So the kind of the, the, the choice is so much wider that this is why this, this phenomenon is not there anymore. But, um, of course, many are trying that. And I think this was also basically the contrast was also again in this society that in that film, the, the part, the, the co-host people wanted to get one of the basic needs satisfied. And that was to be entertained. And it was not a political syndrome at all. It was being entertained. And the Soviet television wasn't very particularly entertaining because the, the basic of that was propagandistic upbringing of a homo sovieticus that would have been thinking the way the party wanted it to think and not to want for anything else. And I think that in the film also that the Communist Party leader of the Secretary General in Estonia, he admits at the end that it was the Finnish television that started to eat up the party and the party's regime, but it's actually not that because that was feeding the basic needs of people. It was responding to the to the things that people knew that were real and that touched upon them. And this is actually what soft power is, that you filter your listening and hearing through your own value base and your own upbringing, be it then from home or from school. And then if there's a difference, the contrast again, that's when you like to hear the 
things that you feel comfortable with. I, uh, it's this really interesting point that the, the point you're making about the ceremony. I mean, you're all fascinating, but the, the, this idea that actually uh, people wanted to be entertained and they weren't being entertained through Soviet TV, and this was part of the reason why this soft power could be wielded. I love uh, Catherine's idea that we're all diplomats now and there are now so many channels and we get to curate our own experience of being entertained or at least we think our experience of being curated. Um, I, I'm, I'm interested to hear, Peter, your thoughts because obviously you've thought a lot about um, some of these ideas, particularly what's going on with, uh, to Catherine's point, internally in Russia and, and externally using soft power. And it's part of, do you think, of kind of this idea of actually you can, if you're curating your own entertainment experience and you can find enough within your uh, frame of reference, then you're not going to hear anything else. Yes, to a certain extent, we have some evidence that, uh, about that. But I suppose that w- what's really changed is is the work of whether it's propaganda in its broadest form or public diplomacy or cultural communication, whatever. It is much more segmented nowadays. I mean, you don't have one channel. You know, you're thinking about targeted audiences. How do you get this message to this audience and this to this one? But, but it's interesting. I've been actually doing a lot of conversations around the former Soviet Union, trying to look at, for example, the Russian messages throughout that space. And, and they do repeat despite a certain degree of segmentation. They, they do kind of repeat. And, you know, they're, they're essentially about Russia being inevitable. You know, it's not even soft power. It's more kind of just like you ain't running away from us ever power. And, and then obviously, like, you know, themes like history are, are, are used in, in, in various, very, very manipulative ways. So, so that, you know, that, that, that it remains a huge, a huge topic. Um, it, it remains something that the Russians, partly because they are obsessed with this idea that they lost the Cold War, partly because of, you know, that sort of paranoid mentality that we hear Soviet officials using in that clip. Um, a little bit like Hitler in the, in the thirties is obsessed to the idea that Western propaganda destroyed Germany in the first world war. They are obsessed to this idea. Um, they've convinced themselves of it. And, and in that kind of paranoia, they, they now spend a lot of effort exporting it. Um, while, I mean, until maybe very recently, but even still, th- th- there is no concerted plan from, from the West, like there would have been in the Cold War. So, so at the moment, it's, it's, it's really just Russia and then like bits and bobs of kind of NGOs and stuff trying to help independent media in Kyrgyzstan or something. But it's not, you know, Russia controls the Kyrgyz information space, you know. Uh, you know, when you get your TV package in Kyrgyzstan, three of the channels are Russian state propaganda channels. And then like, you know, there's, there's, you know, USA that's supporting a, an anti-corruption NGO of two people. So, so it's, you know, there's only one player in that space at the moment. So uh, it's interesting. There's an afterlife to, to all this stuff now. And, and so it's really fascinating, and, and I'm interested in why. Why do you think? I mean, is it because it's just very hard to, in that way that you know, since we're all diplomats, and there are so many ways, there are so many different channels you can get your information from. In order to have an impact, you have to be so noisy, and to be so noisy, you have to have enough money, and there isn't just the money and the will to do it anymore. Or actually, have has anyone given up? I mean, why is it that Russia and China are still pumping money into this and other countries in the West are less interested? Well, I mean, there's many, there's many reasons. I mean, um, the official logic was that after the Cold War, the market would do it and sort it all out. And there was a sort of blind faith that, you know, whatever, we, we, that, that it would just be fine. There'd be free media in these countries and you didn't need 
this kind of state intervention in, in these processes anymore. Maybe that's changing. I mean, the, the sort of the Russians and Chinese didn't think that. ISIS don't think that. Um, so, you know, anyone who's trying to make their way in the world as a, as a rising power um, is very much aware of the need uh, for that sort of investment. Britain never stopped, to be honest. Britain is one of the few that does it, but in a very kind of limited and very selfish and very narrow way um, through, you know, the British Council and through the World Service. But it's still one of the things that we're kind of a superpower in. Um, so just to interrupt you, when you say selfish, you mean one directional? No, it's about making Britain look good. It's not about kind of saving the, the democracy for the world. It's about, you know, Britain, basically. I mean, selfish in a benign way. I don't mean in an evil way. I just like, that's what it's about. But I think there, there might be an awakening. You know, we'll see, we'll see what comes with the Biden administration and stuff like that. Um, the EU has suddenly started talking about like, oh, maybe we need a, a common European uh, imagined community as well and not just a trading community. So so we have we have some sort of noises being made which weren't for several decades. What do you what do you do you do you sort of concur with that, Catherine, in your in your sort of your meanderings across Europe? Yeah, oh absolutely. And you can see it, you know, you, you can see it I mean whether or not they're succeeding is another matter. But you know, I think that what we've seen, for example, from the European Commission, um, you know, since the new commission was set up in 2019, if we see, you know, the way that, you know, they've set up a YouTube channel, you've got, you know, the, uh, Ursula von der Leyen, you know, doing her briefings, you know, as, as often as she can. They're, they're putting little clips out on, on, on Twitter. I mean, all of this, you know, I mean, this is neither particularly funky nor particularly innovative nor particularly entertaining, but it's a lot more um, than they used to manage to do. I think it's much more concerted. I think, you know, there's a, there's a, the realization that, you know, in a world where you might be, uh, you know, uh, constantly asked to choose a camp between, you know, a, an, an American camp or, you know, or, or buy into a Chinese camp, which would, you know, get you secondary sanctions from, from the U.S., basically, um, that, you know, that you have to carve out a persona. Um, and then I think, you know, and an attractive persona. And I think that from, from that point of view, we're going to see the EU try and deploy a lot more, uh, a lot more soft power in possibly a more selfish way as, as, as Peter was using the term, i.e. to make itself look good, you know, not so much into a kind of a dialogue of nations, but, you know, to be an attractive uh, power capable of, of wielding the kind of soft power that we're talking about. In other words, you know, be attractive enough that people can gather to your interests without you expending too much energy to get them to do that. But of course, I mean, Ursula van der Leyen doing her, her, her YouTube videos or uh, Allegra Stratton's doing that from Downing Street or whatever is not the same as the you know the scorpions singing Wind of Change if that really is a if that really is a story uh, it's a great podcast anyway somewhere on Spotify um, or Dallas you know push through kind of secret CIA funded Finnish TV um, is that is that stuff still happening do we think I, mean, I think it's taking place in in different ways so you know I mean if you if you think of a campaign which I don't think that Eurostar thought of by itself you know Eurostar a few years ago started saying you know that it was responsible for you know, X thousands of, you know, Eurostar babies, you know, across Europe and the UK and so on and so forth. You know, this kind of, you know, this strange data that they put out there that basically they had done their bit, you know, to create a kind of, you know, a, a European population that was, you know, 
uh, transcultural and, and, and so on and so forth. I mean, that kind of thing, I, I think we're going to see the, you know, the private sector uh, do more of it. Um, I think that we're going to see, you know, different actors emerge. I think, of course, you know, people like Ursula von der Leyen are not going to invent anything new. Um, but I think, we're, yeah, I think we might just see different actors. I mean, are we are we going to see the the equivalent of, you know, uh, Bruce Springsteen, you know, in East Berlin in 1988? Probably not. But something else, I think, you know, something else will will emerge. I think the, the battles are. Going are too costly to wage in a different arena, and the cultural arena is probably the obvious one where these battles are going to rage. The questions coming in on the uh, Q and A chat, and please do ask them. We've got some time for some questions before we before we um, step into our dancing shoes. And I, Carolina has asked whether whether she thinks that that whether you can see the impact. I suppose this is going back to Kiel and Kirsty as well. Do you think you can see the impact and effects of that? late 80s, early 90s soft power um, today. I mean, obviously, uh, in some ways, Kia, you've, you've alluded to it by talking about, you know, the kind of uh, Amerophile, uh, whatever the expression is for the lovers of the US still in Finland. Is there evidence that that's had an impact? Well, as uh, whole this world seen in the Finnish television was really hard not to love, so, so of course there are impacts. Uh, the 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 impacts. Uh, well, we are the impacts here. I mean, uh, Estonia is a is a free country. We are, well, I could say living quite good, living well, happily. I at least uh, hope this is an impact of, uh, of this, <laughs> uh, this cold war waged uh, against the Soviet Union with the with the help of the um, uh, our Finnish uh, sisters and brothers there. And did you, when the film came out, did you have stories that emerged uh, about you know did people kind of the floodgates open and people share their own stories of of the impact of the sort of filtering through of information into Estonia? Yeah, when we were making this film, we actually um, put the announcement uh, into the newspaper that uh, the people are welcome to share their uh, personal experiences and memories with us um, about these times and uh, about the experiences uh, with the Finnish television. And there came a lot of mostly funny material. That's good, yeah. too. What funny stories? Um, we actually have have used these in the in the in the film narrative to uh, kind of mix this uh, these uh, into uh, into um, kind of collective memory. Yes, I just wanted to add that I, I see two things. First of all, I see that the Finnish language, of course, really really helped the Estonians to receive the assistance of reform and revival then right after the independence in the early 90s. I was in, I was uh, living and, and working in Tallinn since 90, from 93 to 98 and the kind of the flood of assistance because building a state is a lot more complicated than you would think in particular if you have to build it from scratch. Mm -hmm. And if you want to build it on a completely different building blocks that are there, and this was the Estonian choice. I mean, they, cho they chose to build a completely new society, unlike many other 
uh, ex-Soviet republics. And with the language skills coming from, if even from the children's television, um, they were able to communicate and absorb that assistance in a completely different level than, than any other. And the other one was then that they were able to absorb the assistance because as we speak, there are still many, many ex-Soviet states that are struggling with the reforms because they have not been able to absorb the assistance or the, or the democratic, uh, value-based new system that w- has been introduced. And they have the desire to do that. They have the desire to join the European Union and, 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 uh, through that path reform their societies. But the ability is not as good as it was in Estonia. And I think this was the thing. That they were prepared because they lived in this Estonians or the large part of Estonians, or let's say that the important part of Estonians, the Tallinn region, they lived in the real world. And that helped them to see that market economy is also, it, it's not just, you know, manna from heaven, that it, it requires a lot of work. That's a, that's sure. a very interesting point. Um, I don't know I, if you agree. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That is most beautifully said. Um, I, there's a, there's a, there's a question, excellent question from Carlos Losada, who, who, who is, I'm going to, um, I'm going to read out his question because, um, uh, because I think it's going to be tricky for us to bring him to the, into the, into the, uh, debate. But he says, as a South African, as a South American and someone who lived under the oppression of Americans, life in the West growing up in a military dictatorship, dictatorship instigated and supported by the Americans, it wasn't great either. I used to look at the Soviet Union as a savior, admire them as the only ones who could stand up to the Americans. Only when I came to the UK and met people from behind the Iron Curtain, I realized all oppressors are the same. Of course, the USA oppressive regime in South America was by proxy, i.e. many Latin American countries under dictatorships had death squads that killed any form of dissent against the USA interests. Have any of the panelists had any experience in comparing and contrasting life under the two different oppressive regimes? When we made the film, it, it, it suddenly started to fly. The, well, that was about 15 or 12 years ago, something like that. Yeah. And it, uh, it went to quite many festivals and, and quite many television channels, like surprisingly for us. Uh, well, uh, being screened in the Korean television wasn't a big surprise because, uh, well, everyone can imagine that they could kind of relate to the issue of, of living on the, on the border of, of two very, uh, or on the border with that very ideological regime and, and so on. But, um, but also in, uh, in Spain and, and, uh, there were some film festivals and, and we were having like Q and A's and then and so on and, and conversations and a uh, lot of uh, Spaniards of our generation. I mean, born in, in late sixties, early seventies, they could relate to like our issues through their experience uh, with the Franco regime uh in their childhood and and that really was eye-opening did they talk because obviously information was presumably heavily restricted into into spain during that time as well was were there ways that information was filtered through 
Uh, well, um, I'm not specialist on the the Franco Spain, but uh, but uh, as I uh, recall, they were uh, seeing the French TV channels, listening mm-hmm. to French Italian radio, so on. Because uh, um, I don't know how banned uh, the pop music, for instance, uh, was in in Franco Spain, but uh, but that's uh, definitely it's 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 an interesting point to to uh to wage these uh, mm-hmm. these two oppressed systems by kind of wonderful fortuitous chart uh, situation you we just recently made a podcast um about franco spain and the silences and uh-huh. the oppression of culture um, that okay. happened during that time so our listeners can ha- can have access to some some phenomenal um art- filmmakers and artists who've been documenting kind of the experience of living through Franco's regime and now really trying to relook at um how history is told now the silence is really broken i'm wondering i'm wondering if if Kirsty or Peter or Catherine have any response to Carlos's point about whether there were other ways you know other experiences of sort of cultural diplomacy um i i so in my last book i i i actually sort of compared my parents experience in the soviet union with the philippines um under the marcos regime um which was uh an american uh supported regime until it wasn't um in 1980 sort of five and six that the americans abandoned him but but um um and and yeah there's a lot of similarities there's a lot of similarities the philippines had you know dissidents who were quite similar to sort of my parents being dissidents in the soviet union the same you know the same little sort of printing presses um and by hand scribbled out sort of like uh publications So there, there, there is some similarity, even though the cultural thing less so because, you know, the Philippines were always inundated with American culture, but there were still sort of very strong echoes and the tactics of dissidents uh, and the tactics of the secret police, how you dodge the secret police. So a lot of similarities there. And I've always, I've always wanted that to, 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 to have a much bigger kind of discussion between the Latin American and Central European experience, um, and see where, you know, uh and and explore them uh, explore the similarities and the differences um but also maybe the similarities and differences between different latin american experiences which i don't think are all exactly the same a quick point on on sputnik and spanish because sputnik's uh you know the russian propaganda channel's budget in spanish i think is the largest and the target is not spain but south america so they are really feeding on what was described earlier feeding on this kind of built in us maybe not fear but this disliking one point and the other point i wanted to make was that according to my information in eastern germany there the regions which are uh, where the the alternative for deutschland is is uh, uh, voted for most are the regions where the western germany television wasn't shown or wasn't seen so this kind of multi valued multi uh, cultural or multi polar perception that the television the western television built in the eastern bloc is not only in estonia finland pa- parallel but also germany eastern germany that's fascinating to look at the parallels there's a lovely message from leila who is um I hope I, i hope i pronounced your name correctly leila she says she's from the eastern part of estonia and she also danced disco but they all came they didn't come from her disco moves didn't come in from finland they came from indian movies from like bollywood there was like a whole movement she said in her school 
Um, and she was she was commenting that India was a was a sort of was a sort of safe zone, a safe place as far as the Soviet Union was concerned. Um, uh, it was sort of parallel decency, and I and I just love the idea of of kind of disco and dance moves coming in from from all over and descending on Estonia. And um, Gil, did you come across any any stories about other dance moves that were being danced at the time? The other dance moves, well. Um as a generation, we were not the the disco fans either. That was the the era of the of the punk rock and and so on, and that was really like rebellious and 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 so on. So disco probably was for you know for the um, previous, elder previous generation. Yeah, well, whoever, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but, <laughs> but yes. Yes, the the um, and 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 you you cannot particularly dance with a punk rock, so so the answer no, is no. Sort of sorry, mosh. <laughs> yeah. Um, huge thanks for all of your kind of thoughts and kind of kernels of ideas. And we just began a conversation. Really, it's quite short on Zoom, but I hope it. But I could whet everyone's appetites to watch the rest of the film. We ended the evening with a disco session, dancing into the night to some great Estonian classics. Many thanks to our amazing guests for the evening, to my brilliant Dash team, Christina Catalina, Sarah Coulson and Bethany Davis, and to our collaborators and supporters, the Estonian Embassy and the Finnish Institute. It was really a pleasure to plot the evening of Kerstikas and Jakko Nussinen and colleagues. I hope we've given you a taste of Kiel's fantastic film. We'll post links to the trailer on our show notes. You can catch all our previous podcasts on our website or on your favourite platform. And if you like the Dash Arts podcast, please do share and leave us a review. It helps us stay visible and would mean the world to us. The Dash Arts podcast was produced by Rachel Head. I'm Josephine Burton. We'll be back soon with more conversations. Thank you for listening. Silmat happy days, no to spill those